<laughs> yeah. Um, my business partner, Nicole, and I signed our lease on March 7th, right before everything shut down. We got a demo guy in to rip out the floors and um, like the baseboards and, and pretty much everything that was in the space. And, uh, and then the world shut down. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, anything else happened in March? <laughs> no, real chill. Very <laughs> <laughs> casual, man. This is Krista Oben, sommelier, general manager of Paris Paris, and one half of the Grape Witches. We started our business definitely not as a business. Uh, we started around four years ago, this past January, throwing wine-themed events. We both worked in wine for more than 10 years, Nicole on the uh, importing side and me as a sommelier in wine buyer and restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to share the, the wine that we love, so like sommeliers are drinking after work uh, with people who don't necessarily work in wine. And uh, these are often pretty, you know, cost prohibitive wines, but we felt that if we kept it scrappy and just put great stuff in people's glass, that people would, would drink better wine and get to know these producers that we love so much. And so in terms of the, the brick and mortar business that you started at the beginning of, of the pandemic, uh, what was that meant to be and how did it sort of transition uh, as, as things developed? About a year ago, uh, like last December, we rented it from the two cool women who ran it as an event space. And we did sort of a pop-up wine shop before shops were legal. Mm-hmm. So we had people kind of drinking wine and trying it either by the sip of the glass and they could order cases directly from the agents who imported it. But when that space became available, we were like, yes, we'll take it. Uh, so we met the landlord, took it over, and our plan was for it to be our office and event space for all the kind of wine education stuff that we do. And events are a thing right now, um, but the one silver lining of the pandemic was that we were able to turn it into basically a bottle shop. Like instead of being a wine bar, we're able to sell bottles to go for the first time in Ontario, which is pretty cool, as long as they go with a snack, which is also fun. So we were able to open the wine shop of our dreams that we thought would never be a possibility in Ontario. That wine shop is Grape Glass on Dundas Street West in Toronto a place to discover and learn about wine outside the traditional old boys' club. It's one of countless businesses that have had to adapt quickly and creatively to the realities of the pandemic. Every restaurant in the city has turned into sort of a bottle shop. It's really kept the lights on for a lot of us. And before, of course, it was very frustrating to not be able to sell bottles to go like you can get in any other city in the world. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, while I don't agree with really a lot of what the Ford government is doing. This change and the loosening of those rules has really helped a lot of a lot of restaurants and other spots deal with a really difficult time. I asked her if we could predict what kind of scene will survive the financial crush of the pandemic. I think the smaller restaurants uh, are often the ones that feel it first and hardest and have the most difficulty recovering. A lot of these bigger chains are they're gonna be fine. Right. But I'm but I'm worried for the the smaller spots who maybe aren't as great on like social media or don't have big investors behind them. But I definitely see a lot of creativity uh, from people who worked in restaurants or formerly worked in restaurants or are restaurant adjacent and kind of see, you know, the scrappy events online that they're putting together or the pop ups that they're doing for the cool food that they've been making. So I see a lot of support through my restaurant community friends uh, for each other's projects. Whether it will be enough to get the restaurant community to this in a you know safe and financially secure way, who knows? But it's a tough industry already, and some changes have certainly been necessary for a long time. So it's definitely sort of a time that people have been thinking about what they want in restaurants as a job or as something that they support. I hope that we see reopening safely with a renewed care for the staff that works there. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I think that's something that really kind of got lost along the way, but it's something that I've heard a lot of people talking about, and I think it's so important. How do people get paid, and how do we protect their safety, and all of those things. So I hope that restaurants are able to open safely and take care of their guests, but also their workers. I hope we can go to wine tastings again one day. I mm-hmm. hope we can sit outside with our friends and like drink from their glasses. That sounds crazy. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm into it. Uh, I have a lot of hopes for the future of restaurants. It seems very far away right now from, from where we are. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from my icebox of an apartment, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk about all things food. John Kiru is the executive director of the Toronto Association of BIAs, and he tells us how programs for curbside dining can be expanded after some popular pilot projects last summer. And African Food Basket executive director Anand Lololi talks about food security and sovereignty and the passing of food policy champion Wayne Roberts. But first, Suresh Das is a writer, editor, and regular CBC Radio Food Guide columnist. He travels the greater Toronto area, exploring the different flavors, cultures, and communities the metropolis has to offer. But how have the cultural and culinary hubs in neighborhoods across the region been affected by the pandemic? Stand by. So Suresh, throughout this pandemic, we've heard a lot about the economic impact on small businesses, especially restaurants and bars. We know about the job losses. Uh, these are things that have been covered and and they're sort of easy to quantify. But uh, a question that I'm really interested in is, you know, a lot of neighborhoods all over the city of Toronto are built around the community, the culture, the relationships of food in every pocket of this city. And while that's hard to put a sort of number to, you're somebody who, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of of these kind of communities. And uh, I'm wondering, what are you seeing? How are people surviving the pandemic? What kind of communities based around food are are being threatened? And uh, what what do you hope to see? There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, uh, COVID hasn't affected the industry evenly. It's been disproportionate in terms of how it's impacted restaurants in the downtown core, how it's impacted small empires of restaurants, like uh, not necessarily fast food chains, but the micro enterprises that we've kind of fostered in Toronto in the last 10 years as we've blossomed into this world-class eating city. Uh, and then it's also impacted restaurants that are outside of the downtown core in a very different way. Um, we are a very multicultural, sprawling city, but it's a, a, as you know, Glenn, it's a broken city in terms of access, in terms of um, transit. You know, we we have the GTA with these siloed micro neighborhoods that are somewhat interconnected. But because we don't have the best transit in the world, um, they've been allowed to kind of create their own identities. And it is somewhat created a mosaic in a sense, uh, but it's also allowed these neighborhoods to foster relationships within those, within those communities, but it's also not allowed people that are curious about food that travel to Toronto to be able to access these neighborhoods because they're, they're hard to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Scarborough is a great example. Brampton, Mississauga, great examples. These are cities that, if I were to compare them to my travels, they're world-class food cities, but we don't talk about them. We don't cover them. We don't, as tourists, get to experience them because they're pretty far. I mean, if you don't have a car, getting to you know, one of the great restaurants in Mississauga or Brampton takes quite a bit of time. Right. So as a result of that, and as a result of food trends and social media knowledge and understanding the pulse, this has all had a variety of different impacts 
in the in the food uh, scene in the last year. Um, I think the the biggest sort of theme that I have noticed since March of 2020 is that there is really this attention to supporting the neighborhood food place. And that's a common theme that applies to downtown Toronto and applies to the places that I frequent in um, the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, you know, maybe you're a foodie, maybe you're someone that's interested in food, you're a food enthusiast, and you like to eat at a variety of places in your city, but when the pandemic hits and you feel this sense of claustrophobia, you are immediately drawn to the baker down the street or the shawarma place down the street. And you focus more on supporting those guys. And I, I've noticed that downtown. I've noticed that uptown. The differences are exacerbated when you talk about, well, who are these people that are running the restaurants, whether they're on social media or whether they're not, because it has a huge impact. A restaurant downtown that's a neighborhood restaurant that has a social media following would have had an easier time adapting to COVID because they have a base, they have a marketing base, and they were able to reach out to that marketing base and say, okay, um, we are not able to allow indoor dining, but we're allowing takeout, and here is what we're going to do for takeout. And you can order through us via Instagram or call in and come and pick up. Mm -hmm. Uptown or in Brampton or wherever else, that restaurant that was fostering a community probably did not have Instagram. They probably were not on most social media platforms. So they had a harder time getting the word out that they were still open, that they were facilitating takeout, or maybe they had a new menu to, to draw the crowds back in. And in, in, you know, in those instances, they're drawing crowds in that would have to take transit to, to come visit and, and, and take takeout. So there's a lot of other issues there with people being worried about taking transit and, and the risks involved there. So there's a lot to unpack there, Glenn, in terms of the the effect that COVID has had and our general lack of support from all levels of government to the hospitality industry, which has razor-thin margins to begin with, even in, in normal times. Uh, but now, you, you know, you, you put a pandemic on, on that, uh, restaurants really have no chance of surviving. Obviously, the, you know, the effect on uh, who can have clientele, at some points we had sort of alfresco dining and, and we had the cafe TO and curb TO programs that uh, I feel like largely were in the downtown core. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, cafe TO is mostly, you know, obviously in the city, but I, I mean, I, I kind of understand that because when you go uptown, the facade changes, right? I mean, wide roads, strip malls. I just, I think the city, the cafe TO was just a, a short-sighted implementation. It had to happen very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, anecdotally, if I can just tell you, most of the restaurants that I eat at and profile at are in strip malls, right? Which means that there are large parking lots. Um, and in normal times, when I would go to visit a place in Brampton, the strip malls are packed. There's activity. The cars are coming in and out. There are families and couples and individuals running in and out of these tiny parking spot size restaurants getting takeout and then leaving i mean like most of the places i cover are not really suited for dining anyway because they're tiny places but the activity you notice the most is the parking lots and the amount of activity in those parking lots well now with covid i mean i was in brampton four days ago and these parking lots are empty and they're dead right and they were dead in september and they were dead in, in august so Cafe Tio could have been easily implemented in those spaces because you have the physical capacity. I mean, I would argue that you could do Cafe Tio in a much better way uptown than downtown because you have the physical infrastructure there in terms of just open spaces. And I mean, in some instances, you see examples of um, restaurants that have somehow maybe have had some sort of conversation with landlords and they've set up some sort of outdoor dining structure. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've seen some places, you know, the, the patty shop, the Indian uh, curry shop that have set up some sort of hut outside or they've done tents. Uh, the dim sum places on Rich, in Richmond Hill are, are a great example where they've talked to the landlord and they've said, hey, can we take up a few parking spots outside and do this? Right. But it wasn't a part of Cafe Tio. It was done sort of ad hoc. 
I think uh, listeners of the podcast would also think of uh, Wexford Heights Plaza, uh, mm -hmm. Lawrence Avenue, and the way that that, that parking lot uh, in front of the strip mall there was sort of activated as a community gathering space and a, a place where people could sort of sell their wares. I feel like some answer to the second year of the pandemic, the second summer of the pandemic must lie there in terms of these these places where there is the potential to activate the space. Absolutely, yes. I mean, and in most cases, there are plenty of parks and public spaces nearby that you can take advantage of too, right? Right. Like I said, we, we are going into the second summer of the pandemic. In terms of the impact, what we've already seen, you know, when we're talking about the communities that sort of build up around these places to eat, thinking back to Wexford, like Shawarma Row, these whole communities where it's a place to to connect, um, to talk to your neighbors, to establish yourself if you're a newcomer, you know, I have to imagine that's been threatened and, and I have to imagine that something needs to be done to, to make sure that the, the impacts are sort of lessened. Absolutely, because I think the risk here is the amount of culture we'll lose in the process, right? So, I mean, you've mentioned Wexford Heights a couple of times. So there are, I mean, Shawarma Row is a fascinating place because it really has blossomed slowly uh, at first over the last 20 years. And then in the last five years, we've seen, I guess because of newcomers from Lebanon and Syria, uh, there are a variety of reasons. I mean, Sri Lankans are moving out of Scarborough and they're going east and newcomers are finding home in Scarborough, especially in West Wexford Heights. So you're seeing more regional and more personal interpretations of food that we have never had in Canada before. Mm -hmm. Forget shawarma. There, there's a deeper dive into certain kinds of cuisine that we haven't had before. And these are places that are tiny places. They don't have big menus. And they're not on social media, as I said before. So when the pandemic hits, if they're not able to adapt, we'll lose that education and that access to culture that is still a very new thing in, in Canada and in, in the GTA. And also losing access to the sense of a third cultural food. Um, a family moves here from somewhere else. They raise kids here in Canada. The kids are safe from Lebanon. They grow up with kids from India or Sri Lanka, and they're influenced by different kinds of cultures and different kinds of food. And then when they decide to take over their family's business, they interpret food differently than their parents did. And they infuse and bring these other elements in in a very respectful manner. And they open these places in the GTA. Now that's a unique food whether you want to call it third cultural food or progressive food, that's a unique food to our heritage, right? That's unique to Canada and unique to us. And in the pandemic now, Glenn, like, I mean, we have lost so many of those specific types of places that have introduced us to something new, whether it's sushi pizza or whether it's pho, but with chicken broth and made a specific way that's representative of Vietnamese and Jamaican culture in, in the GTA. We, we, we are losing those places on a regular basis. Right. I think that's what's at stake. It's not just restaurants closing. We're losing access to very specific interpretations of food that tell the story of Canada and this, tell the story of us from generation to generation. I mean, I, I don't want to live, leave on that grim note, um, but I, I also don't want to ask you to solve this crisis. So I'll just say that from your perspective, in the very short term, not even talking about when we come out the other side of this, but what, what are some quick wins in the short term that you think could really help sort of staunch the the flow to stop these these places from from losing their place? If there's one thing I've learned in the last year from the audience, uh, from the eater, is that they are very supportive of their neighborhood restaurants and they're very supportive to go out of their way to eat from places that need our support. Mm -hmm. If I tweet about a place that is not doing so well, it'll immediately get a response uh, from people that I've never, you know, had an interaction with before. So I, I can I can feel it's palpable that I can feel that there is a desire to support and throw dollars behind small mom and pop shops. There are a few examples of things we can do. So one of the things that the AGCO did early on in the pandemic is they allowed restaurants to have cocktails to go. Mm -hmm. So like you know restaurants that were able to do takeout were able to sell wines by the bottle. We're able to sell cocktails and kits. And that really allowed a lot of restaurants in the downtown core to stay afloat. Because we all know that in the restaurant industry, 
it's not the food that makes money. It's the alcohol that makes uh, the money in, in terms of being able to keep the lights on and paying the rent. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. The other prevailing trend that I've noticed that has been happening in the GTA for the last four or five years, but has really picked up steam is the idea of cottage catering and the, the idea of taking to Instagram or Facebook to do food pop-ups where you're essentially, you go online and you discover that there's a chef that used to work at some place that now has been furloughed or is no longer employed. And he will take to Instagram or Facebook to sell pizza, to sell ramen, to sell noodles, uh, soba noodles, for example. And you would order through Instagram and he would have some sort of delivery mechanism on Fridays and Saturdays, or you would go to Dundas West or to Scarborough to his commissary kitchen and pick up his food. And I've just seen such a huge increase in these home-style pop-ups. And it is feeding families, it's feeding communities, it's putting money and food on the table. And I think we need to foster that. And I think that is really helping a lot. I've spent the last six months diving into Facebook Marketplace and Instagram to get a sense of why people are taking to social media to sell food. And at the end of the day, it's because it's facilitating communities and it's feeding communities um, that don't want to leave a certain circumference to be able to find food. And on the other end, it's allowing these individuals to be able to make some money and, and, and survive. And so far, you know, there has been some forgiveness from public health. And I hope that continues because I think we need that. We need to be able to open these avenues while we're not allowing indoor dining to, and while we're in the middle of winter to allow takeout, not just from brick and mortar restaurants, but from individuals that do not have employment right now mm-hmm. and to allow it directly so that we pass delivery services that charge an arm and a leg from businesses um, and take a large cut. So I think that's really helping a lot. Okay, well, Suresha, that is something to at least celebrate. Uh, I, I know the city and, and different levels of government have been kind of working on helping businesses hop online with the digital Main Streets program, but it, it seems like they're doing it for themselves as well. And that's that's pretty encouraging. <laughs> and uh, I think that might be the best that we're going to get uh, in this sort of year, year and a half. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, but uh, look, you're also talking about an industry that is the most resilient industry, the most adaptable re- industry in, in, that, that I know. Um, if anyone can find new ways of getting food on the table, it's the hospitality industry, right? I mean, like these, the, the, the number of times chefs and cooks and business owners have pivoted in 2020 into 2021 is impressive. Right. Well, Suresh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me, Glenn. Now, programs in Toronto like Cafe TO or Curb TO were extremely popular last summer. They were emergency experiments to help restaurants find ways to serve people in safe, socially distanced outdoor settings. For many businesses, these programs kept them afloat in the face of almost certain bankruptcy. Now, with another summer in the distant horizon, the City of Toronto is looking at bringing these programs back, expanding, and improving on them. What improvements are businesses looking for? We asked Tabia Executive Director John Curie. Uh, so, John, uh, I first wanted to get your impression uh, in your work speaking to all kinds of BIAs from all over the city of Toronto. I think the general sense is that Cafe TO and Curb TO were beloved uh, programs uh, during COVID, uh, something that uh, maybe helped businesses stay afloat, which, uh, you know, otherwise they might not have had the opportunity to stay in business. Uh, so from, from Tabia's point of view, uh, what were the success of those programs uh, in this past summer? Absolutely a success. Um, as you've noted, it allowed many businesses to stay in business and the flexibility to help animate that has shown what many people in the city and placemaking initiatives, even before COVID, talked about Toronto becoming a little more European-like and uh, the culture of cafes, etc., needed to be supported and upgraded. And, uh, you know, maybe it took the pandemic to show that we could be creative and provide 
those options that in fact did help many restaurants out there to stay in business and weather uh, that portion of it. So uh, invaluable. We uh, support, we're strong supporters and the BIAs are strong supporters of Cafe Tio for the coming year. Greatly appreciate the investment and uh, the change in philosophy that the city and council have undertaken to make that happen. We are looking for uh, it to be a little more easier to navigate. Uh, We did have some hiccups, but uh, one can't uh, blame those hiccups because we truly were city BIAs, restaurants were making this up on the go. So we knew there would be a few little issues here and there. But from that experience, we're looking forward to ironing that out significantly so that 2021 can be as smooth as possible. To that end, I think the appropriate thing would be to call at the executive or at council for an MOU, uh, to a memorandum of understanding where we, we all understand what the city's obligations are, what the BIA office obligations are, what the BIA's obligations are, as well as what the restaurant's obligations are in putting this and, and managing this program for the coming year. Uh, I think that would go a long way in smoothing out the rollout, the closeout, and the operations through the summer months. Is that proactive or you know, is that meant to address uh, some hiccups that we maybe saw in the past summer? Um, that it, It's a combination of both, but I think it would definitely help with some of the hiccups we saw last summer where who was going to make the decision when two abutting businesses, restaurants, both wanted to grab that extra couple of feet to get that table on there of an open space, etc., So understanding who would make that decision, who would negotiate with the businesses on 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 where that should be placed, you know, who brings out the the pots and the flowers uh, that are used as guards uh, to help protect the patrons, who manages them, etc. So, again, we got it all done last year, but it wasn't without hiccups. It wasn't with without a bunch of calls to the GM's office or to the BIA, through the businesses, et cetera. So it's a combination of experience from last year and a clear understanding of who does what to avoid those issues this year. As well, I did see some talk about uh, accessibility concerns with some of the ways that uh, these Cafe TO or Curb TO um, sort of extensions encroached into the public realm. And uh, so I'm certain you've been having uh, conversations about how uh, BIAs and, and the businesses they represent can sort of smooth those out. Absolutely. And and that will be at the direction of MLS, you know, the ramps, uh, et cetera. Keeping the clear ways uh, is, is always a priority. You know, the 2.1 meter clear way that's required out there, et cetera. So again, these are experiences. We moved very quickly to accommodate and maybe at times we, we, we didn't get it quite right. So being able to modify and make those changes and that MOU in place, understanding of what the expectations are, what can and can't be done, is probably one of the the priorities that's not on the report, but it's something that we will be suggesting uh, because we we still have a little bit of time. After all, we're talking uh, May, and and again, uh, hopefully everything will be in place at least a week before the May 2-4 weekend giving the uh, the businesses that full week to set up and decorate and animate uh, their spaces because the anticipation is, again, that it will be income that is desperately needed. And the sooner they can get out there and do it, the better. So that'll give them the chance to do what they need to do to prepare and roll out their version of the cafe. Right. And, and so if we take last year as a sort of beta test of necessity, what do you hope to see for next year when we kind of have learned some lessons? Uh, it's you know something sort of brand new that we tried in, in a kind of scramble to address the problems that uh, COVID presents. So uh, now we have some hindsight. Yeah, no, and I'm hopeful that we'll see well over 800 restaurants participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the number last year. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, some of those restaurants that really 
didn't take full advantage of the uh, the cafe opportunity where their spaces were simply left empty most of the time where they simply put out a you know full couple of folding chairs and a folding table and didn't do much with it that they do animate and showcase themselves and take the opportunity that this presents to them and i'm also hopeful that maybe we can have non-restaurant businesses possibly use some of that space when the restaurant isn't using it through the day, you know, sort of till four o'clock or something when supper comes along where maybe a, a dry goods store a couple of doors down would be able to do a bit of a display in, in that space through the day. So some of that flexibility and ability to provide all businesses on Main Street's with a bit of an opportunity to work within this uh, Curb TO uh, initiative. Given the success of these programs, uh, is this just a, you know, something nice, a treat for the pandemic, or is this something that we should really be thinking about as a, a new way of uh, doing business in the city, of, of dining and uh, exploring neighborhoods? Absolutely. Those discussions are on. I think the report speaks to it uh, somewhat in terms of looking at long-term uh, initiatives of this, uh, you know, there is always, always the balance of parking spaces and these cafes. You know, there's neighborhoods where people are saying, well, that's taking away our parking and parking is so precious. You know, what about the rest of us? Yes, the restaurant might be benefiting from this, but you've taken away parking from us in, in this component. So there is definitely that balancing act. Each neighborhood is not built the same way. Uh, so there may be different challenges uh, out there in, in different neighborhoods. But all in all, there is no question that this is a goal that Toronto small businesses and BIAs and certainly us at Tabby have had of making this even more so of a uh, cafe culture uh, than it has been and somehow incorporating this into a long term initiative. You know, I would have been well in support of a two-year initiative here. The city of Toronto is investing some, about a million dollars into this from the uh, traffic engineering uh, perspective to the barricades that need to be purchased, et cetera. The BIA office is putting in grants to help BIAs animate those planters that are being used and et cetera. So we're making substantial investments in barriers, et cetera. So why not spread that over a two or a three-year program. But again, those discussions are definitely there. And like I said, I think this report contemplates a 2022 version of this, whether it will be done on an emergency basis with no uh, license fees for it, uh, etc., or not. So be it. Those could be discussions. And remember, there is another player in this, the AGCO and the province need to provide some of the liquor licensing forgiveness, if you will, that they have last year, and, and they will do again this year from a report we saw in December that they will extend this for another year. So any long-term initiatives around Cafe Teal, like patios, etc., will need to be a collaboration of a number of parties. And it seems at the moment we're doing it one year at a time. But yes, those discussions are definitely a part of this. And turning to the pandemic in general, I'm asking everyone, the economic impacts of the pandemic have been headline news, and, and rightfully so. We're talking about people's livelihoods, we're talking about jobs, and we're talking about a lot of money. But I'm interested uh, in people's perspective on the impact this has had to the sort of culture that, that pops up around restaurants and dining. You know, entire neighborhoods are sometimes built around and, and are sustained by the culture of, of food. So I was wondering if you have perspectives on how that's been impacted and uh, how we can maybe climb out of it? Look, we've, you know, the crisis spending, in my opinion, is is over. The grants that are out there, the programs that are out there are, are out there, and that's what we've got. You know, we hope that they continue them, that they push the, the deadlines that are in place right now to make sure that we cover the entire period of the pandemic, that we don't leave people short for the last two or three months of the impact. So we should be focusing on recovery. And what does recovery funding look like? And I think a part of that could be exactly this, 
Toronto is arguably the most diverse city in the world. 160 some odd languages spoken. I've always advocated in our tourism pitches, etc. Visit the world in seven days without a passport. You can eat breakfast, lunch, and din- dinner from every culture in the world, right in Toronto. And that is what's happening out there. So the culinary experience, the gastronomy of Toronto is second to none. And supporting these businesses however we can to make sure that they're there, they can recover is is important, whether it means providing them with some money to replenish their stocks, especially for those that have closed down, that have said, I'm going to open once this is sort of over and we can open fully to assisting them in other ways, including no fees for permits for patios and the like. So building that culture out, having a plan on how to manage and assist the culinary experience in Toronto is very important. So it's it's out there. It's one of our strengths. The ethnic diversity makes it our strength. But I can also tell you that as many businesses have, as have closed and, and the hospitality industry is one of the hardest hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, at, at the risk of having some of my friends in the dry goods say, well, we've been closed for two months. We can't even do pick up or a thing, uh, stuff like that. While they can, it's selling dry goods versus food is a different commodity, obviously. But again, the sector that it's been hurt the most, we've also seen some people open restaurants and food type establishments, even within the COVID period. So there is an opportunity. I truly believe that the entrepreneurial spirit, especially in the culinary sector, is is resilient. It will come back. There will be people that will take the opportunity to fill voids. And I expect that rents will be modified to be a little more reflective. And there will be premises available that maybe are set up as a kitchen already that people could use to start their enterprises in there. Absolutely, livelihoods, jobs, mental anguish, etc., has hurt and continues to hurt out there. I'm also looking forward to seeing a return in the hospitality side of things, the entertainment venues, the places where you can have dinner and some music or or concerts, etc. Mm-hmm. I think that sector is the one that's really, really in need of support and, and looking forward to that and how we reimagine our spaces out there fully understanding there is noise bylaws out there in cafes, et cetera, but trying to get some of those artists uh, back uh, to work and and supporting them. So I think there's a lot of play here, and it all comes to how we, at all three levels of government, start supporting the recovery. Uh, Like I said, I think the crisis spending, uh, we've seen what we've seen, and that hopefully continues till when it's needed but we need to see a strategy of recovery. All right. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. All right. Keep well. Okay. You too. Finally, Wayne Roberts was a pioneer in food policy in the city of Toronto. He was a food policy analyst, activist, and writer, and he helped create policies such as the Toronto Food Charter. He passed away this month. Anan Laloli is executive director of African Food Basket, research associate at the Ryerson University Center for Studies in Food Security, and friend of Wayne Roberts. Here he is to talk about Wayne's legacy and the food security challenges brought on by the pandemic. Yes, my... Um Acquaintance with Wayne started, I think, around 2000, when he started coordinating and managing the Toronto Food Policy Council and did a, a terrific job for the next 10 years, just, you know, bringing people together. And uh, what I really like about him is that he recognized the diversity of the city, the population, the different cultures, and the different issues that folks bring to the table for particular communities, whether it be a peri-urban farmer, 
or someone is a nutritionist or someone is involved in community garden animation or anything to do with urban agriculture or cooking. So um, I appreciate that very much of how we create this, what we call a big tent situation. We bring lots of different people from different areas together to talk about food and try to make sure that our voices reach the city council. He was also instrumental in uh, the Toronto Food Charter, which was created in 2000. And I was hoping to get your perspective on on what that impact is and how that sort of shapes policy in the city. Well, um, that shapes policy because um, you find politicians, they, they're busy doing what they have to do and to, to really zone in and focus on food. It's just one of the areas of their responsibility. And uh, the food charter really, ha- they had good conversation that um, what are what are our, our policies that really could could impact people's lives, especially people who uh, live in low-income communities who need you know access to community gardening, access to the resources for cooking programs, are uh, being able to sell food in city parks. It is a document that really enhance communities' access affordable food within the city, making sure that um, Toronto Public Health carry forward policy documents so that they could they could have a better idea of what our discussion were within the Toronto Food Policy Council. And 20 years on, uh, in your opinion, uh, does uh, the city do a good job of keeping to the goals set out by the food charter? Uh, it, it, it's always a work in progress, but uh, if you really... Look at Toronto in comparison to a lot of other cities. I think we're doing pretty good. Could be better, um, but we're doing a, we're doing a pretty good job. And especially when we're looking at urban agriculture and that conversation about gardening and backyard gardens and and balcony gardens and and the new idea of urban farms. You know, we we I think is about three or four new farms popping up around the city where it is access to land. And it's always a, a, a good conversation of having access to land to go food and real estate. You know, it's always that thought of making money and making sure we have a, a city that's more healthy. So I think um, with the charter, I think we, we brought some conversations that open the eyes of councillors so that when they get requests from developers, you know, we can make a case that, no, this, this area should be left aside so that we have green space looking at climate change. So we make a lot of um, suggestions to fulfill what happened with the charter. And I could see that younger politicians, municipal councillors, these ideas were talked about and discussed in the Toronto Food Policy Council. So something that they should take a look at. And uh, and there's a lot of work that was happening in the city with, with the city staff and nonprofit organizations like the African Food Basket and Food Share and the Staff Food Centre to really give a sense of where we need to go when we're looking at food in a, in, a, in a city as large as Toronto and creating a more healthier environment. You and Wayne did work together in the Black Creek, Jane and Finch neighborhood, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the work that, that's happening there. Yes, we came together. Um, it, was a, it was a project with the African Food Basket and um, the Black Creek Community Health Center. It had three different components. First, we were engaging seniors in gardening and also seniors in cooking and and being able to come out to the farm. And this, this is at the Black Creek Community Farm where the African Food Basket have a Ujama Farm program where we engage young people, seniors and, and adults. And this particular program focused with seniors within the Jane and Finch community and engaging them around, you know, being able to garden because Gardening is definitely a year that, um, that, that tends to lead to health uh, of them engaging in growing food and also cooking program. But it's also an intergenerational component whereby the young people in a program that we call Cultivating Youth Leadership, where we engage young people from the community to grow food and learn about leadership, they were able to interact with the, the seniors uh, in the garden, so that intergenerational piece. And also, it's an assessment really looking at how could a community health center, like Black Creek Community Health Center, uh, be more proactive and engaging in food access programming, for instance, 
So we, we settled this assessment, this food assessment, asking community um, how they feel if the community health center should have more programming. And in that piece, myself and Wayne, we work a lot with engaging the community in conversations about, uh, you know, what they think would be uh, good programming from the community that the community, that this health center could engage in, but also um, making sure that we hear back from the community what they would expect as programming from the health center uh, in relation to food. Um, I wanted to ask you about your work with African Food Basket in the context of of the pandemic. Uh, We've seen that Black and racialized communities have been hit particularly hard by the effects of the pandemic, the the economic fallout. And and I know you've been working towards that and and also towards a goal of food sovereignty. So I was hoping you could unpack some of that work and and for listeners to, to explain sort of what the concept of food sovereignty is and what that looks like in the city. Well, uh, the, the concept of food sovereignty, I would say, um, it's, it's basically communities being more proactive in engaging that particular community in how to become food secure. Mm-hmm. What, what we find, and I think we contribute a lot and encourage me in, in the sense that food and culture intertwine and how you engage a community with food programs. You have to be mindful of the cultural values of that community, for instance groups like the African Food Basket, and we've been programming um, program intentionally within the African, Caribbean, and Black community because of the cultural values of that community. We, For instance, we have a program what we call Black Food Toronto right now, where we purchase culturally specific foods and deliver it with the seniors, single parents, and low-income folks within the Black community because we, we have been programming services for these communities for the last 25 years. And we, we originally had a distribution program that because of the, the COVID-19, we had to um, reorganize that program and, and start it again so that we could deliver these baskets. And the thing about the basket is that the food that is in the basket are things like cassava, plantain, yam, edos, food that are culturally specific to the communities. And we see that appreciation. We even do meal programs. And uh, we did something pretty interesting this year. We did what we call uh, plant-based meat meal programs that are culturally-specific. So, mm-hmm. for instance, you have a meal of, like, peas and rice, callaloo, okra, things that, if a senior who is, is, is not well, are uh, affected in some way, when they get these foods, it makes them feel good, you know? Right. Um, so, we, so we intentionally focus our programs. Now, we look at, at some of the shortcomings uh, of programming we realize as a black food sovereignty institution that they need to be more programs within the black community looking at food, engaging black farmers. Uh, we have a history, a long history that you, you, you hardly could identify uh, black farms in Ontario. But, you know, we've been here since eating something. We need to have more black farmers. Mm-hmm. And because because the, the food system traditionally has been a Eurocentric food system because these are, the, are the history of the farmers, most of the farmers in the countryside in Ontario uh, their heritage is from Europe, but now you have a you have a, a province where there's this large new uh, communities of color, whether it be Asian, whether it be African, whether it be South South American. You find folks come with credentials that could help them to become farmers. So we need to see more farmers. So our program of Black Food Sovereignty is encouraging to see more Black folks. Who, who live in Canada traditionally from long ago are those who are recently come to get into farming so that we could start producing these foods, these cultural foods, because there are lots of cultural foods that could be grown in Ontario that is not grown in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of food sovereignty is to make sure Ontario could be a more diverse sector within the food system and producing these other different types of food. You know, I could give you lots of examples uh, of food that we could grow here and export to the U.S. because they're not growing these cultural foods, but because they, they, they're, not, they're not cognizant of, of the cultural values and the market. Because, you know, we millions of dollars of food we import that we could grow some of it here. If we grow 10% of that food here, those cultural foods, you know what I mean? It could have more jobs and people could be able to have much more access to these cultural foods that they prefer. Mm-hmm. But now everyone eats cabbage and, and carrots, you know what I mean? Like I was just <laughs> on a conversation where a black institution that we supply food to them and they distribute, 
Uh, they say, you know, you guys could tone down a little bit on the, the Irish potatoes and the carrots and the cabbage. Mm-hmm. You know, because they want to make sure we have the balance. Because we balance the box with foods that are grown in Ontario, but also foods that come from um, from food miles, from, whether it be from the Caribbean or Asia or Africa or Latin America. Well, Anana, I want to thank you for talking about your work and for sharing reflections on your friend Wayne. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, I, I really, really miss my brother Wayne. Uh, his humor, his wit, you know, uh, very helpful. I would like to say uh, my condolence and also on behalf of the African Food Basket to Wayne's family. Okay. Thank you so much, Anan. Be well, eh? Okay. Thanks a lot. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your local greengrocer, beekeeper, and sommelier. For more on food, look out for our next Future Fix podcast, where we'll talk about using technology to promote food security in northern and indigenous communities. That's coming up soon. Please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, which is open for curbside pickup, or you can visit spacingstore.ca. And don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Spacing Magazine, all about how main streets can bounce back from the pandemic. It's available now. In the meantime, bon appétit. Bon appétit.